Welcome to the Dabble Co. Podcast, and before we get started today, I want to tell our listeners about another show in the Offscript Health Podcast Network called Heart of Healthcare with my friend Hallie Tecco. So Heart of Healthcare expands on the traditional lens of what we think about as healthcare by exploring things like the determinants of health, including food system, housing, climate change, and more. So join Hallie. She has incredible guests like Mark Cuban, Charlemagne the God. Subscribe and give it a listen. You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner Claire O'Brien. Today I have a lovely woman named Jessica McDevitt that is in Charleston, South Carolina, and she is a mom of a chronically ill child with a heart condition that she's going to tell us about. And somebody actually sent me her her story or their family's story through Instagram, so so thank you, and just said, you know, I think this might be an interesting thing for you to, to talk about, and it probably doesn't get talked about enough. And so we're just going to go through essentially what, what that looks like for families and, and what it means for their family, and hopefully it might help some of you, you know, feel less alone. It might help other families find resources and, and may help providers that are, are caring for these these families. But I think it's relevant really to all patients. But Jessica, thank you for coming and thank you for taking the time to do this. Hi, Claire. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'll just tell you a little bit about my son. So I have three little boys, but my middle son, Hampton, is four now. And he was um, born with all kinds of heart defects. He was born with five different heart defects, but essentially... Um, Single ventricle heart disease is what he has, so hypoplastic right heart. Um, And we were prenatally diagnosed with that. So, you know, it was just a total Mm. shock to us. Yeah, yeah. What what was that like? Gosh, I mean, how much did you know before he was born? So we found out in our 18-week anatomy scan that... He, our OBGYN came in and she's so sweet. She delivered our first. So we sort of had a rapport with her and I could just tell she had this pale face and she was like, your son, I can only see half of his heart on the echo. And, you know, she's like, I think it's because the other half isn't there on the sonogram. Yeah. She said she could only see half of it. Um, and I think that was on a Friday and by Monday we had a full day of appointments just to, um, go to a specialist and confirmed a diagnosis. And yeah, so it was quite a whirlwind. And so he was born with half of a heart and um, he was born at MUSC and he had his first open heart surgery at four days old. But, you know, we had a whole, our, my whole pregnancy was filled with fetal echoes and meeting with the cardiology team mm-hmm. and all of that, just preparing you. But it's so much to take in that, yeah, before he was born, I don't feel, feel like I was very prepared at all. And so when he was born, it was it was pretty dicey. Like they weren't really even sure if he was going to live and immediately went through surgeries. And right. I mean, it was pretty crazy from day one. Right. Yeah. So it's a very significant diagnosis, single ventricle heart disease. I want to say it's probably the most severe diagnosis you can get, um, especially prenatally. And What it, Mm. you know, the survival rate, especially within the first three months, it's called the interstage period. These kids are guaranteed to have at least three open heart surgeries. The first one's at birth, 
The second one is sometime between four and six months. So that period between the first surgery and the second surgery, I want to say like 30% of the kids die. Um, And so it's like a big deal just to make it to the first year. Um, So yeah, the survival rate is very not comforting. So um, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. And it affects every part of their life. You know, some of these kids do go on to live somewhat normal lives, but yeah, it's intense. So you guys got plugged in with the palliative care, and we talked before this in case y'all are like, how, how do you know all this? Um, so <laughs> you guys got yeah. plugged in with the palliative care team, and MUSC is the big teaching hospital in, in South Carolina or Charleston specifically, for those of y'all who don't know, when we keep referencing, referencing MUSC, that's what that is. But you guys got plugged in with the palliative care team really right away. And I'd love to kind of talk about, you know, palliative care, as you said, is so much more than just the end of life care, Mm -hmm. which is kind of, I think what people think of it as palliative care and then hospice and all of that, but kind of walk, gosh, walk us through that and how that team helped you guys navigate. And, and then they actually, he, he did, I don't want to ruin the story. You walk us through that. Yeah. So that, in hindsight, we've come to learn is extremely unusual for a care team to bring on palliative care, especially that early in the process. You know, he wasn't even born yet. And so, you know, we had our first appointment at MUSC with the fetal cardiology team just to confirm his diagnosis. And then we were very, very closely monitored thereafter with very regular appointments. And I remember that second appointment, I looked at the my chart and I saw that they had added palliative care. And I had just like, this is why I I hate my chart. I'm just saying. I hate my chart. I have a bad my chart story. But anyway, that, like, (laughs) I had no idea that they were coming. And I was like, oh, God. And my first thought was I thought they must have seen something on the last echo. And they didn't want to tell us. But he's going to die. And they know it. And they don't just haven't told us yet. Um, You know, so that's immediately where my mind went. But when we went to that appointment, which these appointments are so intimidating because you're in a conference room, sort of. um, And you have all the cardiology folks there. You have the social worker. You have, um, in this case, the palliative care team. Anyway, it's like 15 people. You have the MFM. Um, So anyway, it was very daunting to go to anyways. Um, But the palliative care team was so delightful. And Conrad Williams, who's the leader of the team here at MUSC, he was the one in that first Mm -hmm. appointment. And he just got down on a stool right in front of us and talked to us like more on the human level. It wasn't so much about the diagnosis, but it was like, hey, you know, what does your support system look like? Do you have other kids at home? Are your families nearby? You know, um, what do you do for work? And it was just very much connecting with us and sort of assessing, like, what's it going to take to get you through this? Because they all knew what was coming, you know? Mm. And that was just so refreshing. And still to this day, I tell him, I'm like, you know, whenever we see palliative care, it feels more like therapy, truly, than like a medical appointment because they just take care of you so well. And, um, yeah, really look for the things that sometimes get overlooked by the other providers. Yeah, it's almost like, of course, they're medical providers, but they end up taking on a lot more of the social impact mm-hmm. than, you know, say like the the cardiac team would, because that's that's really that's really part of it. I mean, palliative is supposed to be kind of the term for reducing pain and suffering, whether you're you're dying or not. And in order to do that in such a difficult situation, you have to look at 
all the aspects. Like he said, you know, what's your support system? What do you guys do for work? And, um, and that's the palliative care teams. Like if every, if anybody ever wants something to donate to, mm-hmm. all major hospitals have them and they're just, they just do amazing things truly. So, so you went, you, you got with palliative care and then he had his first couple surgeries and, and just kind of walk us through the beginning few months of everything. Yeah. So, and that's exactly right. They reduce suffering for everybody involved. And by doing so, they enable you to care for that patient to the best, you know, of your ability. Um, yeah. So we got involved with palliative care and Hampton was born and then he had his first surgery at four days old. I remember they were hoping to make it to like seven to nine days, but he was just in such bad heart failure that they had to do it a little bit early. Um, and then that was a pretty, I mean, par for the course, but pretty rocky recovery. Um, and he ended up going into some degree of heart failure right after his surgery. And so he had feeding intolerance and they placed a G tube, which he still has to this day. Um, so, you know, it was just like an onslaught of like, oh my God, I'm trying to pump. I just had a C-section and here's this sick kid and, you know, he's on all this medicine. Now he has a G-tube, you know, it's just like so much information and just overload. Um, but so he had that surgery and then we got discharged um, and he went home. And so, like I mentioned, between that first and second surgery, a lot of these kids do die. I mean, it's like one in three. That's kind of a huge yeah. number. Um, so they have a program. Number. Yeah, it's a high number. They set up a program, which I don't know. That's not specific to MUSC. That's just in general. Um, but MUSC right, has... this diagnosis, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but MUSC has a safeguard in place for that, and it's called the Interstage Monitoring Program, which is really wonderful. It's where a nurse practitioner checks in on you every week, and you're seen regularly anyway to try to catch things early and um, prevent that sudden death. So we made it through that. We did the interstage monitoring. Um, It was a week before his second surgery, which was already scheduled. We were going in for the pre-op. His surgeon just decided to add on a CT, which was not standard of care. It was just something he wanted to check on, which was his aorta, which that's a whole other story. But um, during that CT scan, they discovered that he had developed a secondary disease process called pulmonary vein stenosis. And it's actually the most horrible yeah right oh and that's my my chart story by the way i found out those results on my chart before i went to the doctor okay i we i have to set an aside so okay so my chart is like how patients receive like if your doctor went through this big emr that like we all use in the big hospitals and if we want to send you a message and it's secure messaging and all that but what's enraging about it is like sometimes in like in our cancer land where I came from, somebody's say PET scan result would come out, mm-hmm. go in my chart. And before we had even had a chance to see it, the patient would see it mm-hmm. and it might be terrible or, or they don't understand it or whatever. And exact, like exactly like you're describing, these things get put in the chart and we don't have any control over it. I just think anyway, if that we'll have a conversation with epic about that in yes. my chart but oh my gosh it is it's terrible because then nobody had a chance to explain it to you or talk to you about it you, it's just like oh by the way here's another terrible diagnosis like in your 
email inbox. Exactly. And you know, it totally adds insult to injury because I got that. And I was one of these people who's like on my chart, reading everything as it comes out. And so I saw that pop up and I was like, you know what? I'm sure it's nothing. Like I'm sure they would call me if it was something really bad. And so I'm like Googling it. And those last few days before clinic, I like did not sleep a wink because I just knew, I knew in my gut, I was like, this is not good news. Um, and so anyways, we went into that clinic appointment right before his surgery and I could just see it immediately on our doctor's face. She had to deliver that horrible news, um, and tell us that this jeopardized essentially the whole surgery and his life. And the survival rate is like zero. It's a horrible, horrible disease. The worst disease in Pete's cardiology. I will put my money on that one. Um, And it was just really awful. But what they decided to do was go ahead and do the second surgery. They did not do the normal staged one. This got flipped into a total, like, let's try to tackle this PVS type of surgery. So um, they did that. They did what's called a sutureless vein repair, which ultimately failed. And at Mm. that point, um, that was a really awful surgery. We were inpatient at Christmas time. Um, for his first Christmas and I had, you know, my two year old son at home and anyway, it was terrible. And, um, he ended up getting neck, which is this horrible gut complication where his gut shuts down anyway. And he had to go into like what was essentially a medically induced coma and he was on antibiotics, the whole nine yards. He made it through the neck. Um, but then he was so addicted to all the medicines or just so dependent on it that, you know, when we got discharged after that stay, he, we had to do this whole intense weaning thing, which was like every two hours, you know, the methadone, the whole night, oh, it was just terrible. Anyway, that was awful. And at the end of all of that, we got the news that his disease was progressing. There was nothing they could do. And we put him on hospice and he was eight months old at that point. Uh. So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, It solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. Yeah, what's that like? Not a good time, not a good time. Um You know, I think from the time of diagnosis, it was just all so quick and it was surgeries and surgeries and cats and this and then hospice. And it was just, you're in this like intense adrenaline rush and you don't really have time to process it in the moment. Um, You can't process trauma when you're in the middle of it. So it was just, it was terrible. And we were totally in survival mode for at least a year. 
But tell us, okay, so then he ended up actually, you basically went into, you know, internet land, which we tell people not Mm -hmm. to do, but there are some times when that actually works out. And so I I love the story of, of how he kind of kept going and I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. So I did absolutely Dr. Google all day long and I was researching as much as I could to learn about pulmonary vein disease and it was just nothing good to read about it. However, I did learn that a couple of hospitals in the country were attempting to treat it and were having some success with that. Um, And so I actually found a study that I sent to his cardiologist here at MUSC and she wrote me back and said, you know what, I, I circulated this with the ICU team and we think he needs to be looked at again. And so that kind okay. of gave me hope, like, okay, you know, we've been on hospice for two months, but now they need to look at him again. Maybe there's something here. Um, and at that point, that really got my wheels turning. And I remembered that a few people had reached out to us about Boston Children's Hospital and um, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, both excellent centers, both who treat pulmonary vein disease. And, um, at that, my husband's a personal trainer. And so he was training Cameron Wimberly at that time. And so she shared that on her Instagram and I got this like deluge of, you know, DMs and just people praying for us, which it was actually super uplifting. Um, but like we talked about a lot of the DMs were people just like, Oh, go here, do this, do that. My kid has this. And it was like nothing nearly as severe as what we were looking at. And so I was like, okay, this is helpful, but kind of not at the same time time. Right. Um, Good intentions, but like, no, that's not, yeah, that's hard. Cause you're like, yeah. you don't want to be like this. You're totally wrong, but also you are wrong. And exactly. thank, but thank you for the kind message. It's like such a, I was uh, like, I would cut but, my and arm off really, for my kid to have what your kid has, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, and Cam Wimberly is an earth angel for those of y'all who don't know her. She used to be on Southern Charm and she's just a wonderful human. So I'm not surprised that this story involves her at all. It totally involves her. I mean, she shared that. And so then I, one message caught my eye and I was like, you know what? This is interesting. So I reached out to that mom. And as it turns out, this was a family out in California whose daughter had exactly, to the T, exactly the heart defects that Hampton had, including pulmonary vein stenosis, and it's like six different defects. And um, she said, you know, don't give up. You need to go to Boston. Our daughter was treated in Boston, and she's doing fabulously. And her PVS has, like, died down and gone sort of into remission. I To use cancer talk, like, it, it's very similar to cancer. It's like an abnormal reproduction of the cells that essentially blocks off the connection between the heart and the lungs, and then that's what kills you, and it's really horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but her daughter was treated there, and they actually use a chemotherapy drug at Boston, which is sort of a new experimental thing, but um, they're having some success with it, and it's pretty awesome. So all that to say, I did reach out to Boston, and they immediately wrote me back and got the ball rolling and brought us up there. And... Um, Yeah, they have an amazing team and they are doing like frontline stuff, treating these diseases and just tackling things that other hospitals aren't able to tackle. And so, you know, I think the message there in hindsight is that I should have gotten a second opinion at diagnosis, but you know, you trust your local team and you think that you know that, you know, you're making the right choice and they're making the right choice and um, hindsight's always 20-20, but 
that would be my message going forward to other people is get a second opinion ASAP. Yeah. And I think too, you know, we, we talked about this on the phone, a couple of things with that. Number one, if you have a medical team that's confident and, Mm -hmm. and competent, they essentially will be happy for you to get a second opinion, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and really want to be collaborative. And there are often centers, you know, in the biggest cities in the country that, that do have, you know, maybe clinical trials or the newest of the newest of the new. And it it Mm -hmm. takes, you know, it takes time for things to, to trickle, you know, to other centers. And, and obviously, you know, we, we even talked about this. Some kid has to, had to be the first kid at Boston that they did something experimental on, you know, and in order to, to figure this kind of things out. So it's, it's really, it's, it shouldn't be a, a delicate line to walk. You should get a second opinion anytime you have the, the ability. And one thing I didn't even know this because I, I, I said, oh my gosh, well, how did, you know, you had the resources to go up there. And so is that where the Tefra came in? Absolutely. Yes. So we Hampton has a Medicaid policy and it's called Tefra. It's a Tefra policy. And don't quote me on this because I have to look it up, but I want to say like 12 states in the country have Tefra Medicaid. And what that is, is that's a Medicaid policy extended to the children with the most severe diagnoses. So, um, you know, he, like I mentioned, does have a G-tube and he has this half a heart and um, essentially one lung at this point. So, you know, it's not like they're just like throwing them out to anyone. You do have to qualify for it, but it's irregardless of the parent's income. So that's humongous um, because these sickest of the sick kids, it enables them to travel because what Tefra does is they will help you pay for airline and hotel and all of that to go to these other centers who can treat you. Um, and that's, that is huge. Even for providers, like I had a provider tell me one time, oh, we can't refer kids out of state. They can't afford it. And I said, well, do they have a TEFRA policy? Because they totally can. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, how you know? would we even know that sometimes? Like we don't know, there's so much that can be available that like I wouldn't, I've ne- had never even heard of that until you told me that had never yeah. heard of it. Yeah. TEFRA Medicaid, huge, 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 huge. And, um, yeah. So always check in with your insurance, like any, any sort of travel arrangements or accommodations, like sometimes they'll subsidize even just a little bit of that. And that's really, really, really important. And if not, you know, that's where we were talking about these other heart organizations or other nonprofits, which when we first went to Boston, I did not know about that with Tefra. I had no idea. And so we used, um, an organization called Children's Flights of Hope, which Delta had donated a bunch of tickets to them. So anyway, they flew us up there on Delta for treatment. And um, it was wonderful. You know, just things like that make all the difference when you're having to face something that's already monstrous. And kind of piggyback, okay, so then we were talking about, you know, second opinion and, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody's doing the best they can. And what I think then is super interesting is that, as wonderful as Boston and your experience there was, that still wasn't enough. Right. Yeah. So on the second opinion thing, like you said, your provider should want that for you. And if you come across a provider who does not like that or bristles at that or is offended by that, like that's not, that's a red flag, you know? So there's that. Um, that's a big, important thing. Totally agree. 
we can all learn from each other. You know, all these centers can work together and work collaboratively. And so, anyway, so there's that. That's very, very, very important. Um, and then, yeah, so we went to Boston, which is the number one, or was at the time, I don't know if it still is, um, number one kids heart hospital in the country. And literally people bring their children there from all over the world because they're so good at treating all sorts of things, but especially pediatric cardiology. Um, and so in my mind, I'm like, oh, well, we're at this hospital. They're the Holy Grail. They do everything, you know, we're going to yeah. be fine now. And um, so in order to treat his pulmonary vein disease, like I said, with it being sort of similar to cancer, you have to be very aggressive with it. And so we were having regular heart caths where they would go in and try to dilate and reopen these veins and keep them open, keep them open. They would place stents. And anyway, it was very um, stressful, <laughs> but also very yeah. cutting edge of cardiology. And so, yeah, after our third cath, which they had placed, I think, two stents at that point. Um, the cardiologist came out of the cath lab, and you could just see he was so defeated. And he just said, you know, I've done everything I can, and I cannot open that vein again. Like, it's gone. So at that point, wow. Hampton was like a year and a half, and he only had one pulmonary vein left. You normally have four. So, Ugh. yeah, just that was crushing news. And he said... I remember he came out and he said, um, come on back here with me. So we went back to the cath lab and looked at all the images. And he was like, now you mentioned that you had been on hospice, right? So you have a good hospice team back home. And I was like, oh, here we go again. Yes, we have a hospice Ugh. team. So we took him home and I want to say maybe he was, yeah, one and a half or two at that point. And so we re put him re-engaged with hospice and did all that. And, um, the thing that is with, uh, with him is that he like wasn't declining. And so that again, got my wheels turning. I was like, okay, so he has one vein left, but he's not, I'm not seeing this, you know, physical outward decline that was going to be, you know, our future and was described to us. Yeah. And so, um, Boston told us that the only treatment left for him at that point was going to be a double lung heart transplant. And at that time, their heart-lung transplant program was not even operating because the outcomes are so poor. Um, and especially lung is the tricky thing. The heart transplant's fine. That's easy, relatively. But the lungs, oof, it's a whole other world with lung transplant. And so... I knew that, you know, we sat down with their heart-lung transplant director, and she just said, look, um, what he's doing right now, looking at him, like, he looks good. You need to take this and run and, like, have him as long as you have him because transplant is a rough, rough road. And um, we were like, okay, that's not what we wanted to hear, but all right. Um, you know, and just kind of confirmed that we should go back on hospice, and so that's what we did. And... Yeah, after a few months of just not declining, I was like, okay, I learned my lesson the first time. I am not just going to sit here and twirl my thumbs. Like, I immediately got on the computer um, and started researching and found that the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia did have an active heart-lung transplant program. And so I went on and found who the head pulmonologist was, and I sent him an email, and I just said, hey, here's where we've been. Here's what my son has. What do you think? And he wrote me back within five minutes and said, this could be really good for your son. Send your, you know, send info to, you know, so-and-so and such and such. And he immediately brought us up there. And it was just, yeah, amazing that that happened so quickly. 
And yeah, so then we went to Philadelphia. And that's ultimately where he is now. That's where he gets his treatment now or. Yeah. So at that point we were pursuing heart lung transplant, even though the statistics were horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when you get into this world, where he is, like he should have died five years ago. So like hearing those bad statistics did not phase us or dissuade us at all. Um, And also you have to keep in mind that there's like three pediatric heart lung transplants done on average per year um, worldwide, not nationwide, worldwide. Three? Three. Like one, two, three? One, two, three. Oh, and so, you know, that's not very many. it's not. And so when you hear, and that's per year, but when you hear, oh, well only, you know, 50% make it three years or five years or whatever, you're like, so what? The patient pool is so small. Um, you know, it's not like they're looking at hundreds of thousands of kids. So anyway, the statistics did not scare us and we just wanted to do it. And so we went up to Philly and they did the whole transplant eval, which is pretty intense. Like it's a very intense process to be listed. And, um, they decided to offer him a heart lung transplant. So we listed him and planned to move up there because that's the thing with lungs is that you got to be super close if an offer comes in, uh, cause they can't, they don't last very long between, between bodies. Right. And, um, so we put our house on the rental market and we moved our family to Philadelphia. And this was December of 2019. And he was officially listed January of 2020 and right in the, right before the pandemic. Um, and so let's see, we spent 18 months actively listed for transplant, 18 months, which and, is cause you, an eternity. You have another child, right? Yeah, that's older. Yeah, so at the time, yes, we just had our older son. We have another one now, but yes, we had our four-year-old. He was four at the time. Yeah, he was four. Um, yes, and so that was another consideration: is pulling him away from his home and his grandparents and everything that he's familiar with. Um, and is that what's best for him? Um, and that's something yeah. that we have gotten really, really good at balancing is Hampton's care versus Miller's well-being because it's not just about Hampton. Like, we are a family, and we have to do what's best yeah. for all of us, yeah. you know? Um, but it, it speaks to how, how difficult it, all of this is that you literally moved your entire family to be closer mm-hmm. to his care, um, which, gosh, I mean, and, and not everybody's able to do that, but you guys are able to do that. And I, and I love... I love you said something when we were on the phone about, you know, giving parents the freedom, like you're saying, you know, if you have other kids to, or even if you don't, to to step away and, you know, you can't be there 24-7 and, and it's just such an impact on you, your family, your your family's mental health, your mental health. I mean, can you talk about just kind of the, let's talk about just kind of the social Economical is a whole nother podcast probably, mm-hmm. but just, I'd love for people to hear about the social impact that it has on you as a, a person and, and as a family, because I think that's something that's really significant. We just kind of, after a while, you're like, oh, he's, he's still alive and they're doing all the things and I'm going on with my normal life. Can you talk about the social aspect of this, of having a chronically ill child? Yes. So it affects every facet of your life, every relationship. Um, it has a huge social impact and, um, 
you know, a relational impact too. You totally changes the person. Like the person that you were <laughs> before you had this sick child does not exist anymore. It changes you holistically. Um, and yeah, so even something as simple as, you know, taking your kids to the playground or whatever, and people have no idea like that your kid is so sick. He's just running around like every other kid. You know, you just feel this sense of alienation and isolation that, um, it's, it's really hard sometimes to overcome. And I think especially in the early days of a diagnosis, it's sometimes mm, hard for your friends, even if they've been your friends for a long time to relate, or perhaps they're not sure like what to say, or how do I approach this? Or, you know, is she going to be offended by, you know, X, Y, or Z? And so some of them do back up and sort of like fall away a little bit and that's okay. Um, it, it, you know, it's an adjustment for everybody, but then other friends, it's funny. It's, it's really precious actually to see the other friends who draw closer to you. Um, and who are like, I'm here for you. I'm going to be here for you. I don't care if you want me here. I'm going to be here anyway, you know? And it's just, um, it's really refining in a lot of ways, in a lot of good ways, because it shows you who your true friends are. Um, it's sort of, exposes the fissures also in your marriage, but then it draws you closer too. Um, and I will say that, you know, like a financial hardship, a health hardship certainly has the power to break up a marriage easily. Um, but fortunately in our case, I think the statistics, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm totally interrupting you. you. I think the statistics on pair on families, married couples that lose a child, Mm -hmm. I want to say it's 50 to 70% end up in divorce because it's so difficult to yeah. navigate. And I would imagine kind of y'all's situation is, is, is similar because it's just constant. There's just a constant level of, of stress, basically. Constant level of stress. And for me, like I got thrust full speed into nurse mode, like not, not mom mode, not wife mode. Like I am nurse and I'm doing G-tube care and I'm doing foods and I'm doing meds and he's been on Lovenox and there's the shots and there's, you know, all the stuff and all the crap that goes along with it. Just like keep his little body functioning. And so, you know, for me that I'm able to do it now, but in the early days, it was really hard to step back from that and just like cut off the sensors, like just calm down, you know, and just, you know, notice the people around you. Cause it was, I was so hyper-focused on Hampton. And, um, I think my mm-hmm. husband too, my husband was just like, so traumatized by the whole thing. Cause that was his son and he could do nothing for him except for just put him on hospice and sit back. And it was just really, it was a really Ugh. dark time. Supplements and vitamins are just a part of so many of our daily lives now. So how do we know what to choose in a brand? My family personally uses Thorn. Thorn has partnerships with hospitals and universities across the country, including the Mayo Clinic and Charleston's own Medical University of South Carolina. You can order any Thorn product through me when you create your account at thorn.com slash u slash dabblecoat, and you'll receive 15% off and free shipping on all your future orders. When you create your account, you'll just be prompted to confirm Dabbleco as your referral and the discounts applied in the cart after you create your account. Again, that's thorn.com slash you, like the letter U, slash Dabbleco. And you can also find the direct link in the show notes. So what, okay, if you are listening and you have a friend that you know that has a a child that just has a lot going on, or even it doesn't have to be a child. It can be a spouse Mm -hmm. or even a parent. If you have someone in your life that essentially is 
a caregiver. Mm-hmm. Here's what, first what I would say is, I'm going to ask you, but don't, don't ask them what they need is kind of what I, my understanding, because it's hard to answer that question. It's hard to quantify Like, just do it. Just, just do something. That's just right. Just say, I'm going to come over today and take your other child, or I'm going to bring dinner, or like, don't at, like, I'm going to come, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to come do your laundry really quick. Like, just, I'm just, I'm coming over. You can't tell me no, you know, da, 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 which I mean, let them tell you no, but like, what would you, what would you say to that? I mean, do you agree with that? That's kind of my sentiment that I feel like going through kind of a couple, like, a big medical thing myself and then with just some friends, it's like you can't, people can't even verbalize what they need so you've just got to do it. I feel like that's what I've learned in my 38 years of yeah, life. So no. What can people do? That's exactly right. And the thing is, when you're in the middle of it, you don't know what you need. Like you're so overwhelmed and you're yeah. just like, you know, you were drowning and you don't know what you need. I remember that all the time. People would be like, oh, what can I do? I was like, I don't know. I don't even know yeah. what I need to do, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah, I think it's certainly not waiting for them to be the instigator. Like you have to just like show up and be there for them. So like you said, bringing dinners are huge. Um, if they have other children, perhaps like picking them up from school or taking them to the playground or, you know, just giving them like a moment. Um, and what else? I don't know. Like if it's, if it's a travel situation, if they're like at the time we were living in Somerville and commuting to Charleston, like, you know, daily to go to the hospital, um, giving them a gas gift card, like something so small, like a $20 shell card. I just remember being like, Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. You know, that's not weird. No, it's so not weird. It's so nice. It's yeah. so helpful. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's super interesting. I think the people just, like you said, you don't know what you don't know. And then people are nervous and they're trying not to be weird and intrusive, mm-hmm. but also, I mean, hell, nothing's going on with me. And if somebody showed up and was like, I'm just going to do your laundry and like put it away, I'd, I mean, I'd be like, neat, <laughs> great, go, go for it, you know? And that takes you, you know, an hour or two, whatever it, time. If it, if you don't have, everybody has something to give. If you don't have money, that's fine. Give your time, mm-hmm. you know, and if you don't have time, give your money or your support or what, just whatever it is, just, just do it. Just, just don't ask, just, just do something. Yeah, that's right. And it like even inviting the mom or, you know, whoever, the caregiver, whoever it is to be like, go on a walk around the neighborhood, just like step out of the home for a moment. And, um, change of scenery makes a huge difference and just something so small, like go take a shower and dry your hair by yourself. And, um, you know, like, I don't know when you're so like, Like you said, in caregiver mode, it's very hard to step back and think of doing anything really for yourself. And if you're thinking, you know, I don't know anybody going through this, but gosh, I'd like to help these families. I mean, I think of there's obviously local organizations are are typically not best, but well-trusted and you know what's going on. But there's some really great national organizations like Ronald McDonald House Mm -hmm. is critical to so many families. And I don't think people realize that, that it is the lifeline for so many families. And then almost every major hospital that you can think of has a child life department. I mean, if if they have a children's hospital, they have a child life department. So, you know, things like that, that if you're listening to this and like, well, I can do something to donate to those. That's fine. Cause that's, that's the lifeline for so many people. 
That's right. And also if you're going through a crazy diagnosis, even if it's your spouse, not necessarily your kid, like touch base with the social workers in the hospital too, because they have so many resources that aren't necessarily like advertised, but if you express a need, like they're there to step in, you know? They'll at least try try or find an organization that can step in or, you know, right. there exactly. are resources that don't even get used sometimes because people don't know they're there. Okay, we're going to take a slight left because I know I want to talk about this before um, I lose people's attention span around like 45 minutes, and I know that. <laughs> so for those of you listening. What? Talking about social um, workers, but, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I, I know. I want to talk about red washing for mm. a minute. So if you guys follow my podcast, I had a, um, a young woman on who went through breast cancer, and we talked about pink washing and pink washing is in October when everything turns pink and there's pink ribbons everywhere and pink, you know, cereal and the NFL players. And she was like, you know, it's one, these organizations, like I think she named Yo Play specifically, may not even be donating to any useful cause. So they might put like the pink ribbon on their yogurt and then they're not giving any money, but you buy the yogurt because it has a pink ribbon. And she's like, and two... You know, we're, it's very traumatizing to see all of this stuff everywhere, and so it just kind of just kind of rethinking like the pinkification of this really significant, obviously life threatening disease. And and I wanted to talk about red washing because that's kind of happening. What is it February that's yes. happening with heart disease, and and then there's adult heart disease versus you know pediatric, which you guys are going through, which is totally different, mm-hmm. but. Um, what are your, kind of, what are your thoughts on that? How do you feel during the month of February? Oh God. Okay. So this came up because my friend that I was playing tennis with in February was like, so what are you doing for heart month? And I just looked at her and I was like, I hate heart month. I hate it with a passion (laughs) and like to make it even worse. Um, CHD, which is congenital heart disease awareness week starts on February 7th, which is my birthday. So there you go. (laughs) Just to like rub it in. Um, Ugh, I know. I just hate it so much. I mean, you know, it's funny. So that first February, maybe it was the second February, anyway, after he was born, I felt that need of like, oh gosh, I have a heart kid now. Like, this is my thing that I have to like embrace this. And, um, you know, so I was like, I, we did a little thing with the heart association and, Whatever, and I, I don't think there's necessarily any harm in that. But then I just was like, I had to step back, and I was like, what? Like, why? What? What is this doing? How is this benefiting anybody? Like you said, like, do you even know where this money is going to? Like, you donate to the like, not to call out the American Heart Association, but I don't know. I haven't researched where their money goes. I, don't, I haven't researched. Yeah, I mean, especially like you said, with pediatric heart disease is a whole world away from adult, you know, acquired heart disease. It's a whole nother ball game. And so I'm like, what, you know, what are they doing to further pediatric heart disease research? Or um, I don't know, you know, and so I do, I have a problem with that a little bit of like, where's all this money going that they're getting and putting their stamp all over everything? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just... I just questioned that a little bit. And then, um, yeah, I just, granted Hampton, Hampton was on hospice and so it was a very sensitive time, but some of the other heart moms, which, you know, if it makes you feel better, I'm not judging you, but they are like, oh, 
I'm going to wear red every day and, you know, send little heart things to my kids' class because they had, you know, heart surgery. And I'm just like, oh God, like, I just can't do this. I'm, I'm, this is not my world. You know, I just, it was, yeah, it's trying yeah. to make like light just being or mindful. Like, yeah. And trying to make happy, like happy feelings about this. And I'm like, no, this is not a, not a happy thing. This is just a very heavy thing for a lot of people. And granted that there are children with heart disease who have wonderful outcomes. And I'm so thankful for that, for them and for their families. But there's a whole, you know, other spectrum of families who lose their child or who are like we are. And we're just in this chronic caregiving thing. And it's just a weight. Um, not that I would ever wish it away. Like I love him and I'm so thankful that I have him, but you know, it's just not something I'm going to dance around in a heart t-shirt for, you know? Yeah. I mean, heart, heart disease is the number one killer in America still. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is, it's so interesting. We're turning these really serious conversations into these months, like you said, of like running, you know, dancing around in a heart t-shirt and, you know, wear red or pink or whatever it is. And, and I do think obviously, you know, the road, (laughs) this is so dramatic. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Exactly. Yes. There Mm -hmm. is so much good intention, but also that can, that can take a turn into really trivializing it or tokenizing it for those Mm -hmm. who are very traumatized, you know, by it. And, um, and you know, that's such a good example of like, what, you know, what are you doing with for heart month? Not said with any ill intention, but you're like, well, I'm thinking about how for the last four years, I (laughs) thought my kid was going to die like every day. Like that's what I'm doing for heart month is just emphasizing that fact. So it's, it's hard, but okay. Let's let's end on this. So if you if you wanted like what would be your take home message to you know get away from um bashing heart month but <laughs> so what would be you know your take home message to people who might be going through something difficult like this with a with a family member I mean are there certain things you organizations that you um would like to see people support more or what what would you say to people who are looking to take something from this episode? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, my lens is very pediatric cardiology focused. And so that's the people that I'm familiar with. But no matter what disease it is that you're facing, like look online and reach out and, you know, touch base with your hospital and find those organizations that are supporting those specific, you know, whatever your case is. So for us, it's... um, one big one is the Ethan Lindbergh Heart Foundation, which was started by uh-huh. this lovely mom. Her name's Jessica as well. And her son actually passed away from heart disease, but she's turned it into something so beautiful. And she supports people and families all over the country. Um, you know, if you need to travel for a second opinion, you know, they'll support you for that or in a hotel or an apartment or whatever it is that you need, they're there to help you. Um, and I know that she's just one of, of many. Um, and so I would look out for those and really support those. I mean, you know, and again, there's nothing wrong with research, but I feel like initially people are like, oh, I want to support research. I'm like, do you know how much money it takes to support research? Like there are tangible needs that you can meet for like $500 and really like bless a family and help someone get a hotel room that's, you know, staying by the hospital and the RMH is full or whatever it is. Um, so 
I think research is really value, you know, valuable and valiant and everyone wants to support that, but there are also other things to support as well, which is, you know, these little sort of mom and pop organizations that are started by people who were affected initially and um, have turned it into something to really, really support other like-minded people. And it's really, it's just, it's very humbling to see the effect that something so horrible can have um, and spin it to something really good and really positive. Yeah. Well, gosh, Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time to do Mm -hmm. this and to be here and tell your story. And I know this will be helpful to so many people. Um, and is there anywhere that people can find you? I know you're not a a super public figure, but is there somewhere (laughs) that people can find you if they want to reach out? Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram and it's just at Jessica McDevitt, my name. Um, and especially if you are a newly diagnosed person or a PVS person, like those are the people I love to talk to and I would love to be able to help however I can. Definitely. Well, thank you so much again. And guys, if you liked the episode, as always, it's so helpful if you rate, subscribe, and share with your friends. That's how I keep getting great guests. And I will see you next week. Bye.